0: everyone, welcome to the School of English podcast. Today our guest is Iona Hine who is the Hines Casera Research Associate. Um, Welcome Iona, really happy to have you here today. Thank you, thanks for having me along. No problem, we'll just get straight into the questions and ask you what did you study at undergraduate level and if it was interdisciplinary bible studies was it for kind of personal reasons or religious reasons or just a general interest in theological literature? My first degree was
1: not biblical studies, though it did contain um, quite a bit. So I actually studied um, a degree uh, that was titled theology and religious studies. Um, And when i chose uh, to do that it was a, well a very significant reason behind it was just that it was going to let me do lots of things so within the one degree program i was able to do history philosophy languages literature um so i saw it as a choice that would uh, open lots of, of possibilities um but equally i you know looking back i can recognize that i was curious having been raised raised very much in a church context i was curious about some of the stuff that got said in church particularly creeds which are the kind of statements that say you know i believe um and sort of dot 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 or we believe and and had some quite complex language so i was curious about why some of those things were said so doing a theology degree did let me explore that um but equally i you know a good amount of the degree was um, stuff that could be categorized as biblical studies and that's talking about biblical languages Um, so New Testament Greek, um, biblical Hebrew and then um, applying those uh, to academic study of the Bible so that was part of my degree
0: but but it was more than that. Amazing so you mentioned there um, the Hebrew Bible and we would like to know what initially drew you to that and the book of Ruth as well?
1: Right, so um I for my PhD studies I specialized on um early modern translations of the Book of Ruth. Um in terms of Biblical Hebrew, I actually got into that because when I was in my first year at university I was invited along to a kind of social informal group, um which was a mix of uh Christians and Jews. Um, and we were look, we spent a term. It, it sounds kind of mad in retrospect, but we spent a term looking at um, a story from the book of Genesis about. the. Uh, so for Christians, it's known as the sacrifice of Isaac um, in Hebrew. So in Jewish circles, it's known as the Akedah. That's a Hebrew word which means the binding of Isaac, because um, ultimately Isaac doesn't get killed. This is Abraham is uh, gets a call from God saying, you know, go. And uh, uh, be, you know, get ready to to kill your, um, your, you know, this son that I've given you. So quite an extraordinary passage. And studying that together was really fascinating. And especially because, it kind of opened my eyes to, um, some of the ways in which traditional Jewish reading is done. And the the rabbis would come with kind of quite precise questions about language stuff. And I was really fascinated. And it just made me decide I'd, you know, I had to do a language as part of my degree. So I'd already been doing New Testament Greek. Um, and I thought, oh, right, I, I need to be able to look at this Hebrew. So in my second year, as, a, as an extra to my, cor- my main courses, I took up Biblical Hebrew. Um, so that was the kind of, the starting point was was out of a kind of interfaith dialogue. Um, and then by the time I came back to do my PhD, um, I, um, I guess I still had some of those same questions out of interfaith dialogue. And I thought I was going to look at the kind of modern interpretation of the Book of Ruth. Um, And I chose Ruth actually because I had a kind of last-minute crisis as I was trying to put my PhD proposal together. Um, I I kind of discovered somebody had already written a book on the topic I thought I was going to look at. Um, And in the run-up to putting in the the application for funding, I'd gone round um, talking to people who I knew who were academics, um, sort of chatting about what a PhD might involve. And one of them had kind of just mentioned completely offhand something about the book of Ruth. Um, and I thought, oh, maybe I can make that work. Um, so I had a very different proposal from what I actually ended up doing. But my proposal was about the Book of Ruth. And it's, a, it's interesting because people have often imagined that I must have studied it as an undergraduate because it is one of the texts that's used to teach biblical Hebrew. Um, there's a particular reason why it gets used, and that's it's um, fairly unusual because there are passages in the book of Ruth where two women do something together. Now, that matters in Hebrew because Hebrew has a special verb form for when two people do something and it's gendered. So you but it's fairly if there's a man and a woman doing something together, you'll get the male form because the male will dominate. Um. So you need two women to be doing something together before you encounter that verb form. So from a practical perspective of teaching Hebrew, um, you need kind of need to teach the book of Ruth. But it just as it happened, I did not study the Book of Ruth as an undergraduate. So I came to it kind of fresh for my PhD um, and ended up really overwhelmed by the the number of issues that you could look at through it. And because you have those relationships between women, um, you have a kind of a mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship. Um, You have uh, things around uh, social decency, yeah, all manner of things. But. It was a kind of a quirky journey, and as I say, really almost accidental that I ended up with The Book of Ruth, but
0: I'm so glad that I did. Yeah, sometimes you don't know what you're going to be so fascinated by until it kind of lands on your lap and you're like, oh, this is really good. Um, I'll pass it over to Hannah now just to um, ask the next, next question. Yeah, thank you for coming
2: on the podcast, Iona. I've really enjoyed it so far. Um, I, I can really see how, especially, your kind of interdisciplinary nature has shone through, especially even th- through from your undergrad up until now. You know, d- learning different languages, learning different roots from the Bible, it's absolutely fascinating. So, um, actually, leading on to my next question. So, while I was doing research for this podcast, I hadn't really considered a lot of the c- contemporary critique critiques of the Bible studies so what are you most intrigued in with contemporary research themes such as translation which I think would be quite big for you forced migration or gender studies just as a few that I saw from the School of English website
1: um so it's one of the characteristics of biblical studies that it's good at absorbing critical movements from elsewhere in scholarship um and so just as I mean, well, in fact, it's kind of the opposite with translation studies. Translation studies is distinctive because it's emerged as a discipline in its own right in the past sort of 50 years or so, maybe slightly longer than that now. Um, And part of what it grew out of was... um, People who were translating Bibles and were interested in thinking through that process and theorizing it. Now, of course, people have been translating the Bible for practically as long as there's been any bits of Bible, you know, long before there was a, um, the Bible is known to Christians today, um, that people were uh, needing to interpret it. Um, choosing to interpret it in different languages um, so translation studies is has that kind of special quality that actually a lot of um, if, if you tell the story of it as a discipline uh, you end up talking about biblical studies first whereas say if we were looking at how literary theory had been applied to the bible it's almost self-evident that literary theory starts with with literature separately from the bible uh, that said so I mean it's interesting because for me one of the fascinating things around translation is that it's um, it intersects with migration Um, so we can
2: talk about uh, the translation of text as being a part of their, their journey as text. The thing that interests me the most when I kind of glanced over forced migration per se is that obviously currently in Britain currently in the world we are obviously talking a lot about migration and it's just fascinating that something written so long ago and something that holds so much significance to many people such as yourself such as um, you know by people who do read the bible that there can be so all of these stories and themes that are explored in a text that was from so long ago I think so if you want to carry on please please go for it
1: <laughs>
2: um I mean Ruth is
1: a uh is herself a migrant so that's one of the ways in which migration plays out in my own work at the moment though i'm working on cassira and he is a migrant um so and the bible itself seems to be rooted in in lots of stories of migration because Mm. you have abraham who is before he gets told to sacrifice his well-loved son um he is told to uh to get up and go and leave the land where he has been raised um, and go and find this promised land. So there's a lot. And and then you have uh, sort of Joseph off to Egypt and subsequently people sort of migrating to Egypt. So lots Mm -hmm. of stories about needing to move places. And what that does to Mm -hmm. you when you live in a society that um, you're there for a whole complicated set of reasons that aren't uh, necessarily about choice. Um, and uh you are perceptibly an outsider um so those those kinds of uh experiences of migrants are very much uh, present in the biblical text um and not necessarily something people have tuned into um so uh you know there are other ways in which um Christians especially have uh reflected on migration texts in the Bible in terms of um there are in the New Testament you get passages. That are about not being completely citizens of this life the idea Mm -hmm. that real citizenship is in heaven and that's another kind of that's a sort of spiritualization of migration but it can be for for people of faith it can be those kinds of um ways of looking at things can be really um sustaining um, because if you're having a tough time then actually being able to say it's it's not all about uh, what's happening in my life now Mm -hmm. there is something to look forward to can be very important for
2: people
0: Yeah, it can be such an empowering feeling, I think. So you're currently researching the work of Heinz Kassira, a classicist, philosopher and New Testament translator. And we just like to know what part of his analysis is that interests you. And also, I mean, we've already talked a bit about how um, this uh, kind of interdisciplinary research and theological studies and uh, translation links to the everyday. But how does uh, 20th century... 20th century politics and culture inform his work specifically
1: all right so um heinz Kassira was born in 1903 um and he was born um in germany and he was born to a family who were uh, german and jewish um his father was a relatively famous uh, philosophy professor um but someone who specialised in kind of who was really fascinated by the intersection between history and philosophy. So he did some quite unusual thinking um, in that field. So Kasiru grew up in, a, in an academic household and he chose to continue in academia himself. Um, and he did a, a PhD at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. Um, and really as his career should have been getting off the ground, you know, his thesis was very well reviewed. It was looking at Aristotle and what Aristotle had written on the soul. Um, But just as so that was published in 1932, Um, then in 1933, um, Hitler came to power and one of the first things he did was to say that if you were Jewish, then you should not work in the civil service and cast out Jews who were civil servants and academia was part of the civil service because these were um, state-owned universities so suddenly there was no future at all uh, as far as he could see um, in Germany so he left Germany for for Switzerland Um, a lot of people did the same thing and as a consequence the Swiss very quickly decided that while they were quite happy having lots of extra students um, they were going to close down the the routes to working in academia um, if you weren't born in Switzerland, um, and so by 1934, Casera had ended up uh, in the UK, where he found work as a, a research assistant, basically. Um, and he was working with a ma- man called um, H. J. Payton, known as Hamish to his friends, at the University of Glasgow. Uh, Payton was working on um, he was writing a, a what turned out to be a two-volume commentary on um, Kant's critique of pure reason um, and he felt it would be useful to have a German speaker to, to deal with some of the more uh, tricky bits of, of Kant's language. Um, now the thing here is that as I've said Cassira had been working on Aristotle so ancient Greek philosophy um, and suddenly um, finds that in order to make his academic way in life he's going to need to, to specialise in Kant. Um, he'd done it. Uh, probably one undergraduate course on Kant so it wasn't completely strange but it helps to know that his father was actually a, a famous Kantian scholar right Kant was one of the things that his father had had written on he'd edited um, Kant's collected works in German um, so there was a bit of a kind of expectation that was coming with the surname perhaps that he was going to be really useful for this task and he he puts it himself um, in one of the, in the introduction to one of his um, commentaries on Kant he basically says you know I discovered I was expected to to write a book on Kant, um, not just to help Peyton, but to write his own. So he he mm. enrolled for what should have been a um a Doctor of Letters a, um a D. Lit at Glasgow, and that, that should be like a degree above a PhD. Um, but um, and this is where it's not really clear what exactly what happens, but by the time he left Glasgow four years later, he'd just got another PhD. So uh, two two PhDs, and the second one was was for um writing on Kant. So he had moved from um he initially described himself as a classical philologist, so that means that he was interested in um how the language worked when he was um studying Aristotle. Um and then by this point he's then a Kantian philosopher. Uh and he um moved initially to Oxford. He actually followed Peyton um and was working there, and then he moved uh to got, got further work at Glasgow um now that's kind of a, a a backdrop to his academic career and one of the things that interests me is how his um shift disciplinary shifts are motivated by um needing to stay alive needing to find someone who will um give him a job in academia um and I think that's a narrative that will be recognized by not not with the same severity of, of threat because of course um in a way, it was uh, in a very difficult way. It was an advantage to have been an academic and needed to leave in 1933 rather than finding yourself in Nazi Germany later in time. Um, but um, young academics today, not necessarily with that kind of um, direct um, threat over them, uh, nonetheless may find that their career is diverted by the particular uh, roles that are open for them um, and so being interdisciplinary can come about as, as and changing discipline can be about the the work that's on off and I think that's very much part of Casera's lived experience of course the real turn of events happens for him in uh, the 1950s um, he says just in his 50th year so just before he turned 50 um, he uh decided um, as if from nowhere that he was going to read, uh, apply his Greek skills to reading the New Testament letters um, written by Paul. Um, and he did that. And in the process, um, somewhere in, in what happened, he decided this was a more compelling answer to life's big questions um, than Kant had to offer. And he wasn't saying that because he thought Kant was bad. He thought Kant was the best of the philosophers, satisfactory factory answer to some of the questions he had about the human condition. Um, so he ultimately converted to Christianity and was baptised into the Church of England um, and um, subsequently worked outside of academia uh, translating the New Testament um, and um, reflecting, um, he wrote a, a monograph, a whole book on that that kind of thinking through of Kant and Paul um, seeking to explain his experience. So that, that was kind of I'm answer about um, but He's really interesting for that kind of... Um, Interdisciplinary um, and you know
0: self-taught biblical scholar. Wow! Yeah, I mean, if you get a chance, definitely would because that sounds like such an interesting person to to read his work. Um, you're the co-founder of Embers, a space to discuss early modern Bible studies. And if you were trying to consider a new student to join the group, what would you say to encourage them? Apart from what you've already said already, which is super. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so the distinctive thing with Embers is that it's early modern. Um, and I say that so um. Biblical studies as a discipline in itself um, would tend to be biased towards uh, study of the texts in the era that they were written. Um, So that's not to say at all that that's the whole of biblical studies. um, But if there's a biblical studies department at a university, um, then it would uh, pretty surely teach biblical languages um, and teach about the kind of context in which the texts were originally written. Um, So to do uh, the kind of study that's actually more about how biblical texts have been read what we might call the reception of the biblical texts um that's kind of a subset of biblical studies um and by the time you specialize in looking at that in the early modern period then you can be in quite a small minority and actually there are people who are doing it not with biblical studies as their kind of um most firmly rooted discipline but they might be historians who are really interested in how um early modern um, how people were reading the the Bible in the the sort of so we 're talking um fifteen hundred through seventeen hundred maybe a bit later um so how people were reading the Bible then how they were using it um so that so the the, the notion behind embers is that if you 've got the least bit of interest um sort of overlap between an interest in um the Bible and its use in that period um and so and being an early modernist, then it's actually a whole lot of fun to to share that with others and also to draw on the expertise of others. So I'm relatively unusual in having specialism um, in the biblical languages while also working on early modern stuff. And that's meant that sometimes people have come to me wanting help and wanting to check kind of if they're understanding something that uh somebody has written. Uh, during that period in which they seem to be referring to the bible or they seem to be referring to a biblical language um so embers is is um about uh forming a community of people who can support each other with those kinds of questions and also be um a kind of um a reference point for others who maybe have those questions and and uh weren't sure where to take them to um, And it's very much kind of it's it's everybody from people very new to the subject it's it's actually really uh sort of normal to find that you need to know stuff about the Bible um, that you haven't been trained to work, to work on and that that might be just an aspect of a, of a bit of work and, you know, a, for a spell of your kind of academic life or I mean, it's not just academics, but um, so my point was is that Embers doesn't require somebody to be expert it's a space to come and share the bit of interest and questions and curiosity that you've got and perhaps connect with people who will be able to help you with the bits that that come less easily or maybe which you've not got a kind of formal background in.
0: Yeah that sounds really good like uh, such a good resource I know that um, even from studying English literature you definitely come across references and I grew up Catholic so I kind of understand things more but it is really useful to be able to interpret
2: those things I was going to say as well it seems like a, a fantastic platform for COVID as well so thank you for creating a good space for your students but um, actually related to students one of my last questions is uh, what is your favourite module or MA research project to teach on as a lecturer here at the University of Sheffield?
1: I um that's it's a tough question cuz it's always uh, you know all of the interactions that i have with with students are fun and, and enriching um and i'm always glad to have the opportunity um one of the important ones that i teach on is is uh, lit 113 that's um a sort of foundations in literary study where we make the the uh, where we help students uh, to understand how and how biblical texts and also classical texts so greek myths and and so forth referenced in much later literature, so to be able to kind of uh, recognize uh that i mean and also i um I really enjoy doing the, the i mean you 've touched on the idea this m a um work placement project so because um the work i do tends to be in digital humanities projects um there are some kind of applied skills around that that it's uh, that students find really interesting to do as part of the credited work placement module that's and that's always really interesting and depends you know a lot of it's very flexible and depends on what the student is most interested in um but though i always challenge them to do something that's a, you know it takes them a little bit beyond what they feel comfortable with mm. um. So yeah, those those are both great
2: modules to teach on. Yeah, it seems like especially for lecturers, such a such a good range
0: of things and students that you can interact with. Mm, I was just gonna add to that. I I did um, biblical studies. I think in uh, first, which I think is the the module you're referring to, the Greek myths, mm-hmm. Bible studies, and it it was a great module. It's it's quite difficult um, with the language, but yeah super interesting
2: yeah I, I haven't but I wish I did now I can see the passion behind it so <laughs> I think my last question is and something that I'm quite interested in myself um it said in your uh profile that you coordinated events to mark the 400th anniversary of King James's Bible So, what was it like to hold events for such a national historical moment I find it I studied around that period so I also find it quite fascinating
1: it was I mean it's great to be involved with something like an anniversary because you get so much public interest and there's a kind of appetite uh, for things Um, and so I was involved with an an exhibition well it was an exhibition resource so it was on display at Sheffield Cathedral but also um, all around the country Um, and also uh, a conference and various public speakers. Um, And one of the things about it um, being involved with a funded project at that point in time was that it allowed us to kind of harness that interest, but sort of put a little um, critical note in it. So along with kind of telling the the backstory to why um, King James uh, commissioned a, a new translation, um, and all of uh, what happened around that, we were able to to look at how the Bible has changed, how the Bible is uh, received, how the King James Version specifically is used, um, and then mm-hmm. I, I worked closely with um, Gillian Cooper who was then at Sheffield Cathedral. We, we uh, collaborated on a study guide where we were really keen that people not kind of walk away thinking the King James version is the best version. Uh, you will find people with that opinion. I guess mm-hmm. they're entitled to it. But we wanted to show <laughs> that actually, you know, biblical scholarships moved on mm-hmm. um, and we know more now through the finding of, you know, we've, we found concrete stuff like the Dead Sea Scrolls, our understanding um, stuff has has come on um and so uh it was observable that to some people the king james bible was a bit like a national icon uh, but you don't read an icon right so so it was we were able to kind of open up a critical space and invite people to reflect on mm-hmm. um on how they saw it
2: yeah and that's so such an important project to do on kind of a national level as well especially to you know to inspire people to enjoy history and english like we all do the cesarea website the cesarea stuff will come online uh, shortly at Cassira.org.
1: um and in the meanwhile going to Casera.org will, will send you to, to relevant links so that's that's the
2: place to look that stuff up perfect thank you ah uh, this has been such a wonderful talk thank you very much I feel like I've had a whole English and history lesson just in these <laughs> last 30 minutes so thank you so much for your time today Iona I really appreciate it and I, I hope I had, you have a good rest of your day as well thank you you too Thank uh-huh.